0: Good
1: evening. You are listening to the Sankofa Council of Milwaukee, where your host is Dr. Janine James, Brother Quojo Robinson, Brother Kwasi Craft, and Sister D.D. Cotton. The program is an affiliate of the Black Reality Think Tank. And it airs on the Time for an Awakening Radio platform. Email them at Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. And I repeat, Sankofa, council mke at gmail.com all of their programs are archived just go to the website www.timeforanawakening.com use the search portal and put in the keyword elders
2: finley medical clinic we serve uninsured underinsured and insured individuals Open Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Urgent Care Clinic Friday and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Call for an appointment at 414-988-3079. Finley Medical Clinic is accepting new patients. Vaccines and screenings for uninsured, underinsured, and insured. Located at 10721 West Capitol Drive, Suite 110. Call our office for an appointment today at 414 988
3: Pour. We'll, pour. Ashe. 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 we'll pour to the creative spirit, the great Ashe, out of which we all emerge. Ashe. 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 We pour to that creative spirit by whatever name we know it, whatever name you hold in your heart, in your mind, whatever name your ancestors gave, whatever name you learned as a child, whatever name you believe it to be, whatever name you believe it to be in spirit or in science. Ashe. We pointed the first human beings who came into existence on this planet, the first human beings who raised the first structures, who cooked the first meals, who taught the first children, who had the first children, the first Africans, the first people who stood upright, who walked, who figured out how to stay on this planet, who figured out how to pass that knowledge on to their children and their children's children, the mothers and fathers of civilization. I say, we pour the next libation to their grandchildren and their children's children, those who raised the great early civilizations of Kemet and Kush and Monomotapa, the great medieval civilizations of Ghana and Mali and Songhai and Kananbornu. We pour to those who raised the great civilizations of the Ebo people and the Hausa people and the Kikongo people and the Mambara people, the great Monday civilizations, the great Kikongo, the great civilizations of southern Africa, the Bantu people, the great civilizations of southeast Africa, the Dinka, the Shilla, the Noor. We pour to those millions who raised the foundations from which the world would learn what it meant to be human in the world. I say. We pour to their children who were upon the arrival on the shores of people they had never seen before, found themselves captured and marched overland, found themselves perishing by the millions before they were held on the holding cells and the open air pins on the coast of west, central, southern, and east Africa. We poured to the ancestors who did not know, as they were stripped of all clothing and sent denuded into boats, packed like animals, and strewn their bones across the floor of the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. We poured to them who in the last moment on Africa grabbed the sand and grabbed the dirt and put it in their mouths and understood that the only thing they might have to preserve their place in that continent was their memory of that place and their ability to pass it on to their children. We poured them, I Ache, we pour to those Africans and their children who finding themselves cast adrift in Santiago, Cuba, who found themselves cast adrift in Portia, Spain, Trinidad and Porto Prince Haiti, who found themselves cast adrift in New Orleans and Charleston and Mobile who found themselves cast adrift in Salvador, Bahia, who found themselves cast adrift in Barbados, and the archipelago that formed the wayward and the windward coast. We found them in these places, learning Portuguese and Spanish and French, whose often first words was, oh my God, oh Madre de Dios, who found themselves praying to survive and pass on to their children the memories we pour to those ancestors who are represented in the thousands buried in all the square miles of where we stand, and who sit here, buried before us in 400 caskets forged of wood from West Africa with the Dinkra symbols. each one of them, each woman, man, and child, symbolic of millions, the children of those who could not be killed, we pour our shame. We pointed to their children who somehow survived the hells of enslavement and fought for emancipation in the Caribbean, the French, British, Dutch Caribbean, who fought for emancipation in South America, who fought for emancipation in Central America, who fought the struggles we refer to as the Civil War in the United States, who came out of that, marched out of enslavement through Reconstruction and found themselves making great migrations, eventually ending up in places like New York. Their children's children, who, making a way for themselves, became our great-great-grandparents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our parents. Those who, when the first bones were discovered in this space, held their hands and said, Stop! No more! We are here to speak for those who can no longer speak with their mouths. We pour for those ancestors, some of whom came to Howard University in 2004 and followed these caskets all the way back to New York, we pray to the great ancestors, the ones whose names we know and the ones whose names we don't. And at this moment, as we pour this libation, I would ask anyone who feels comfortable to say the name of someone in your bloodline who is no longer physically here, but who you know made it possible for you to be here. Go ahead. Let's hear the names: Hayward Carr, Porter Griffin, Steve Junior, Evelyn Long. Glover. We pour to the names that we hold collectively. Ganga Zumba in Brazil. Toussaint Louverture, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, and Henri Christophe in Haiti. We pour to the great avengers, Nanny of the Maroons of Jamaica. We pour to the great ancestors, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass. Say the names that you study. Who are the names of the ancestors that you have come to hold in your heart and your mind as you hope that you can do what they did for us for your children and children's children. Let's say some of those famous names. Malcolm X. John Henry Clark, John Jackson, Jacob Carruthers. And finally, two final libations. We pour to those who make it possible for us to do what we do. We pour to these rangers who stand guardian over this sacred space. We pour to these Africans and these folks who have come from Howard University, the staff, the faculty, the administrators who brought us here today to bear witness. This is not a libation, but an affirmation because their hearts still beat, their tongues still speak, their minds still think, and their minds still wish the best for us. We pour for all of those people who surrounded us on this journey today and made it possible for us to be here. We pour this affirmation of thanks, Ashe, Ashe. Ashe. And finally, we pour to your children's children's children who will one day stand on this faith and speak your name. History
4: is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day it is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography history tells of people where they have been and what they have been where they are and what they are most important history tells a people for they still must go,
3: what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her
5: child.
1: You are listening to the Sankofa Council of Milwaukee, Milwaukee, where your host is Dr. Janine James, Brother Quojo Robinson, Brother Kwasi Craft, and Sister D.D. Connery. The program is in affiliate of the Black Reality Think Tank, and it airs on the Time for an Awakening radio platform. Email them. At Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. And I repeat, Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. All of their programs are archived. Just go to the website, www.timeforanawakening.com, use the search portal, and put in the keyword elders.
4: Welcome, Sankofa, Milwaukee. Hello, Sister Fua and Sister, Dor- Sister um, Serta Ante, and also Dr. James. We're going to have a very interesting conversation tonight, and we have two brilliant guests going to be with us. And the subject that we're going to be talking about is gun violence and reckless driving in America. This really is a national problem and a conversation that everyone is having and we don't have solutions. To quote the late, great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. And it looks like according to the murder rate and in, in, in the inner cities and uh, throughout the united states we appear to be on our way to perishing as fools here in our city of milwaukee last night i think we had two at least two more homicides and it seems to be at least two or three every single night and that's just one city so we <clears throat> we think we can practice this code Eventually, because this is not going to be forever, of course. And with this conversation tonight, we're going to talk about the problems, but we're also going to look for solutions. And in a minute, I'm going to be inter- introducing our guests. And, uh, but before we do that, let's talk about the purpose of Sankofa.
0: Thank you, Brother
6: Kuojo.
0: Good evening to you and to uh, Sister Afua Mahat and Dr. James. Um, The purpose of Sankofa Council from our bylaws is that Sankofa Council of Milwaukee is an ever evolving community dedicated to cultivating Sankofa. And that's the reclaiming of our African memory, our African governance and our African spirituality, in order to provide a healing and empowering environment for people of African descent globally. Through an immersion of exploration and study and practice, we exemplify the principles in Guzo Saba, which provide moral and unifying value as the foundation for constant movement towards restoring our people to our traditional greatness. We study and exemplify the ancient laws of Ma'at that allow our ancestors to flourish, that allow them to survive and pass on a legacy of greatness and to interact harmoniously with the world by honoring the universal consciousness in all of creation. We uh, contribute our skill sets that we've acquired, and we seek ways to share with our descendants the principles that have historically been our strength and that have sustained us through creativity, through colonization, and accuration. And we're dedicated to that and committed for as long as it takes to fulfill this purpose. And with that, I'd like to follow up with the Ancestor profile for this evening. And that is, okay. And that would be uh, Derek, Derek A. Bell, Jr. Derek Albert Bell, Jr. was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. On November 6, 1930, Bell was offered a scholarship to Lincoln University but was unable to attend because he did not receive enough financial aid. Becoming the first member of his family to go to college, Bell chose to attend the King University, earning his A.B. in 1952. While attending Declane University, Bell joined the ROTC and following his graduation, went to Korea as part of the U.S. Air Force. Returning from the war in 1954, Bell attended the University of Pittsburgh Law School, earning an LLB in 1957. Bell Bell was hired by the U.S. Justice Department after graduation in the Honor Graduate Recruitment Program Due to his interest in racial issues, he transferred to the Civil Rights Division. He was one of the few black lawyers working in the Justice Department at the time. Bell was the first academic in law that created a case book that explored and examined the law's impact and relationship on race and racism. Along with his Along with this, he examined how race and racism shaped lawmaking during a time when connecting these ideas was not considered legitimate. In 1959, the government asked him to resign his membership in the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, because it thought that his objectivity and that the that of the department might be compromised or called into question. Bell left the Justice Department rather than giving up his NAACP membership and compromising his principles. Subsequently, Thurgood Marshall recruited him to join the NAACP Legal Defense Fund where he oversaw 300 school desegregation cases. Quote, I learned a lot about evasiveness and how racists would use a system to forestall equality. Bill was quoted as saying in the Boston Globe, quote, I also learned a lot riding through dusty roads and walking into those sullen hospital courts in Jackson, Mississippi. It just seems that unless something's pushed, unless you litigate, nothing happens. Later in life, Bell questioned the approach of integration, the approach of integration they took in these school cases because throughout the South, the winning rulings and the following desegregation were often the cause of white flight. In the end, this often meant that schools remained essentially segregated. This would later influence his academic theories where he argued that racism is so quote racism is so deeply rooted in the makeup of American society that it has been able to reassert itself after each successful wave of reforms added aimed at eliminating. In 1966 Bell was named Deputy Director of Civil Rights in the U.S. Department of Health Education and Welfare before becoming a teacher at USC Law School and director of USC's Western Center on Law and Poverty in 1968. In 1971, Bell became the first African American to become a tenured professor at Howard Law School. There, he established a course in civil rights and wrote Race, Racism, and American Law, which today is a standard textbook in law schools around the country. Leaving Harvard, Bell became the first African-American dean of the University of Oregon Law School, and in 1985, he resigned in protest after the university directed him not to hire an Asian-American candidate for a faculty position. Returning to Harvard Law School, Bell would again resigned in protest in 1992 over the school's failure to hire and offer tenure to minority women. In addition to his work in the classroom, Bell was an acclaimed author, having written numerous books. In 2002, Bell wrote Ethical Ambition, Living a Life of Meaning and Worth, which contained his thoughts on achieving success while maintaining integrity. Bill Bell had been the recipient of numerous honors and awards. His latter work included serving as a visiting professor at the law of New York University School of Law. On October fifth, two 2011, Bell died from cancer at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in New York City at age of 80. At the time, the Associated Press reported, quote, the dean at the, U, at the NYU, Richard Rivers, said for more, than, quote, for more than 20 years, the law school community has been profoundly shaped by Derek's unwavering passion for civil rights and community justice and his leadership as a scholar, teacher, and activist. He loved his students in a compassionate and encouraging way. He even taught the week before his death. There continue to be lectures regarding Bell's teachings and concepts at NYU Law School and Harvard Law School. They discuss Bell's teachings of racism in America and explore the future of race relations and racial justice in the United States. Many have connected his teachings to the police brutality and the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020 and 2021. Derek Albert Bell Jr. May he rest in peace.
4: Ashay. Ashay, thank you so much for that. And now I'd like to introduce our guest. We have um, Nancy Kahn from the left coast, all the way from California. Nancy is a consultant coach, trainer, mediator, and facilitator, leading change management processes to create equitable and inclusive organizations. Nancy is the founder of the Cross Differences Institute and a consultancy with over 25 years of experience and specializes in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging consulting. Nancy coaches individuals and teams to learn and integrate liberatory communication and collaboration practices at all levels and to develop leadership and organizational systems and policies aligned with anti-racist and anti-oppression frameworks. Nancy is a skilled communicator who approaches all interactions with compassion and empathy. She effectively engages clients in conceptual and experiential learning with straightforward, thought-provoking content that allows participants to confront their own biases and seek new paths forward. Nancy brings critical diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging knowledge, skills, and commitment to actionable change to each engagement. Nancy is partner in, with Compass Narratives and formerly served as the Executive Director and Founder of Mission Dignity, a San Francisco-based organization. Nancy formally held leadership roles with Bay Area Nonviolent Communication from 2001 to 2016. Nancy specializes in working across differences, power, privileges, gender, race, class, culture, religion, and more, and co-hosts and produces Talk It Out radio on the radio station KPFA 94.1 FM. Nancy identifies as by the B I P O C, and she'll have to bring. She has to break that down for us in a minute. Black, American, Nigerian, and Ashkenazi Jewish, Belarus ancestry, and as a transracial adoptee. So those are some distinctions that we're going to find out more about in a minute, and our. Other guest is Celia Jackson. And Celia is a 1973 graduate of Mesmer High School here in Milwaukee and a 1977 graduate of Hampton University, formerly Hampton Institute, where she earned a bachelor's degree in arts degree, bachelor's of arts degree in political science. In 1980, she graduated from the University of Wisconsin Madison Law School earning her Juris Doctor's degree. As an attorney, she has worked as a prosecuting attorney and managed her own law firm for over 10 years. She has served as Assistant Dean at Marquette University Law School and has been an instructor at the undergraduate and graduate level. In 1998, she moved from the practice of law to social justice. She worked in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee where she directed the Office of Black Catholic Ministry and then served as a cabinet member of the Archbishop as the Episcopal Delegate for Community Services. She represented the Archbishop on many Catholic and interfaith community-based organizations including the USCCB International and policy committee. In 2005, she was appointed by Governor Jim Doyle to serve as his cabinet, serve in his cabinet as Secretary of the Department of Regulations and Licensing. She oversaw the licensure enforcement and administrative assistance to professional boards. The department had the responsibility of licensure licensure regulations, and enforcement for over 350,000 professionals. In 2011, she was appointed as the executive director of the International and Intercultural Center at Alverno College. She oversaw the Study Abroad, International Exchange, and Cultural Education programs at the college. While there, she taught Introduction to Peacemaking, Circles, Ethics and Community Psychology, Master's program and women and Leadership with the School of Business. In 2014, she received a Fulbright scholarship for international education administrators to study higher education in Germany. In 2016, she left atvernal College and went into retirement, where she became a community volunteer. Her work concentrated on addressing safe driving in the city of Milwaukee. She was a co-founder of the Coalition for Safe Driving, MKE, an advocacy group that includes several community-based organizations. In 2021, she came out of retirement and went to work at the Milwaukee City Attorney's Office. She currently serves as the Chief of Staff, Julia is a member of All Saints Catholic Church. She has served on many community boards over the years, including the Interfaith Conference of Greater Milwaukee, St. Charles Youth and Family Services, Benedict Center, Rosalie Manor, All Saints Parish Council, and Human Concerns Commission. Kids Forward, CASA. Romero the Milwaukee Black Lawyers Association and more she is currently the chair of the board of Wisconsin Community Services so that's our two guests tonight and with all of that background and experience I'm sure we could crack the code on gun violence and reckless driving we're going to give it a try so greetings. Yes. Greetings. I'm so greetings. glad you're with us. Nancy. Yes. You I'm know, so the, great
7: your here.
4: your organization um, that deals with the nonviolent communication, I'm wondering how could that be useful or supportive in, in trying to deal with this this violence we're dealing with in America?
7: Well I'd say that the, the practice of nonviolent communication and having the consciousness of nonviolence is critically needed today, you know for all of us, because we've all been conditioned with the language and the thinking of domination systems. So those that type of thinking um, is something that we have to unlearn. And it it comes through in our language, the way that we talk to each other. It comes through in ways that we're not able to hold the humanity of other people. And what I love about the practice of nonviolent communication is that it really reminds us to try to connect and to approach people with empathy and compassion. So many of us are walking around and, you know, we have trauma and a lot of unmet needs. And if we communicate in ways that dehumanize other people, such as bullying, language that labels, dehumanizes, diminishes other people, um, when we're not able to offer, you know, the support and respect to each person, that has profound impact on our children as we progress and become uh, young adults And we need to be able to offer more empathy, compassion, and connection so that people don't end up meeting their needs through tragic strategies such as violence, gun violence. So when I think about the choice for somebody to choose using a weapon, it's when they feel most powerless that we're gonna actually employ strategies to use power over other people instead of trying to figure out how to meet our needs in ways that
4: are not at a cost to other people. Great. You know, there was a person who I, I invited to be on the show tonight who has been advocating a Marshall Plan here in Milwaukee because after um, the Milwaukee Bucks um, game, we had 23 people who got shot right outside the arena, you know, right after the basketball game against the Boston Celtics. And so a lot of people were, of course, up in arms and people had all kinds of solutions that they were advocating. And one of the solutions that got a lot of press was a Marshall Plan. Celia, you you, you heard about that, didn't you? I did, I did. The Marshall Plan. There's so many different approaches that we could take, you know, for gun violence and reckless driving. And, And I know this is something that you've been... Uh, studying and researching and directing and advocating for for a couple years. Do we can we get a solution to this to this reckless driving or gun violence? What do you well, what do you think, what do you think the the solution? Where do we be, Where do we begin?
8: Well, I don't think that there's any real solution. Um, I think that it's it's a combination of things that actually has us in the place that we're in, and I just echo what Nancy was talking about is, you know, we're just inundated with violence and violent messages every day, all day, and so it just becomes part of our mindset. Um, We have violence in um, books and movies and video games, and of course now we're in the informational network so people can do things um, anonymously and they can get a lot of traction. So it it just really requires us to assess what's important and what, you know, how we want our lives to be. And, um, you know, when I think about the whole issue around gun violence in particular, um, it just is, it's just so mind boggling. That we cannot get any traction with um, not having access to guns, um, even if we were just to start with not having access to military style, style guns or guns that you know enhance death that we don't really that people really don't necessarily need, um, even if they're hunters and you know they like to, to do gaming. Um, which is always kind of the the, um, the c- catalyst as, as far as, you know, why we have the Second Amendment and why we need our guns, but I really think that having the will to um, take a step in that direction would be very huge, but we can't even agree on the background checks and, you know, all of what's required there and the age of being able to access guns. So. The access to guns is just way too much. The mental health state of many people is, is, you know, we're suffering from trauma in so many ways, and folks feel like we can resolve our conflicts with guns. So when you have that combination, you have what we're seeing um, in our country today, and it just continues to escalate. And as far as the driving goes, um, You know, I really haven't studied the driving all around the country, but certainly in Milwaukee, we just have a combination of things that have created the circumstance that that we have now taking driver's ed out of the schools for a while, the whole um, devaluing of driver's license and creating a roadblock for people to be able to get a license. And so, you know, folks don't really value the purpose of of getting that license and, and all of what's necessary to get it. Um, changing in, um, you know, pursuit policies within the the police department and uh, a whole host of other things. So we've got a lot of people out here driving that don't know the rules of the road. There's clearly some that don't care about the rules of the road, but, you know, there's probably a good portion that don't know what those rules of the road are as well. And so um, in order to make a shift it really requires coming at it from a lot of different angles. I don't think that there's any one solution, because these are problems that have been built up over time, and they've culminated in what we're seeing today.
4: Wow. (laughs) It's not even safe to to walk down the street. Over on Sherman Boulevard, I almost got hit, uh, at least I I felt threatened, uh, twice within the last uh, few weeks and I noticed that another pedestrian lost his life. Another hit-and-run um, happened uh, last night here right. in, in, in our time, in, in our town. Yeah, I was wondering if, if the Heller decision would have been uh, decided differently, would and, and there would have been fewer guns on the uh, on the streets or handguns at least. Um, but it seemed like the Supreme Court. And I mean, in my mind, in my opinion, they just got the Second Amendment, you know, wrong. And you know, Nancy, what do you have to say about that? I know you're not a lawyer, but if we if we didn't have as many guns on the on the you know the availability of guns, would that make a difference?
7: I definitely believe it would. But I, I think what I like to really look at from my frameworks are, you know, what are the needs that people are trying to meet when they use guns or when they drive in ways that are dangerous to other people and reckless driving, you know, really hits home for me as well and for everyone. But I know my my own mother was hit um while she was crossing the street and left in the middle of the street and almost died, you know, and um so what I look at is everything that we do is an attempt to meet human needs, but when we actually haven't been supported to learn how to meet our needs in ways that don't cause harm, that don't cause harm to other people. And so, you know, when people choose to engage in using whether it's force or enacting with violence, they're still trying to meet core human needs. And I think we have to really start at helping people to learn how to meet their needs in ways that are not gonna cost other people and themselves. And a lot of this requires a lot more love, a lot more compassion and empathy, and working with people to understand and help them understand how they're meeting their needs. We're not taught to do this enough in this society. And so the gun violence and the reckless driving to me, which I'll speak to as more, those are the symptoms, they're not the root causes. Um, And we really need to be looking at the root causes when we think about racism and oppression and, you know, people have been experiencing the stress from the pandemic and all of the the racial violence across the country and climate change. And, you know, there's a lot and people are really struggling. So a lot of what we need to do is really figure out as a society how we're going to help Support our children learning at an early age how to understand what their needs are and how to meet their needs in healthy ways. Um, and in terms of you know where we go from here, I believe we've got to look at strategies that will limit access. It's shocking that somebody can uh, be denied the right to drink at 18, but they can purchase a gun and you know, if we look at developmental stages, I certainly worked with young people for many decades. And I recognize, you know, whether people at the, that, that age, all the way up through 25, are still really developing and going through a lot. And in this society, people are experiencing even more um, trauma and mental health challenges. So we've got to get, as a society, we've got to understand that we're not addressing the root causes.
4: Well, and that's why I'm so glad that you and you and Celia are here in this conversation together. Both of you have um, a different approach from the normal knee jerk reaction of more law enforcement, more penalties, more fines, and it doesn't seem to be getting us anywhere. I know Celia um, was in a meeting down at City Hall. I was there, and she was promoting, you know, looking at the root cause the root causes. Not just more heavy-handed regulations and fines, and and, and so I think that that's, if we could actually get to the root cause, we can have we can have a transformation in in these areas. Would you agree, Celia?
8: Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, getting to the root causes is is absolutely essential. But you know, um, I, I was just listening to the um historical um, background on on Derek Bell who um, I had a, actually had the pleasure of, of meeting many years ago when I was um, at Marquette Law School and um, you know I just think I was just thinking he would be cringing about all of the debates on critical race theory right now given all of the work that he did in that area and all of that And so when you talk about root causes, I mean, we're just talking about systemic pieces that are so so deeply rooted in, um, in our country, in our society. And it just continues to morph and show itself in, in different ways. And so if we did have systems where there was equal access, where people actually could um, have hope, they could prevail, then, you know, a lot of the things we're talking about, I won't say would be eradicated, but they certainly would be lessened. But we just have so many different groups of people who don't really have a viable chance of being successful, because these systems of oppression are so deeply rooted. And so, you know, a few people have been let through. But for the the lion's share, there's there's a large group of folks that just really don't have all of the tools and everything they need in order to um, be successful in life and that's that's part of the the root causes that we're talking about then you talk about people who live in um, situations where um, trauma is kind of a daily experience and all of the impact that that has on a person's psyche and their their willingness to live their ability to thrive I mean, all of that is part of the equation of what we're talking about. But, you know, when you look at the vitriolic debate in politics today on some of the issues, it doesn't seem like we're moving in a direction that really would allow for more access. We're we're we're, we're, we're kind of actually in some ways stepping back. And, and I, I cite the whole critical race theory as a classic example um, because clearly the oppressive systems that have been in place in this country and the violence in which this country was founded, those are all in the fabric of, of America. And so, you know, if we can't even own and acknowledge those types of things that are present or are part of who we've become, then it really makes it very difficult for us to make a shift in our way of being, because
4: that that mindset is is so um prevalent so a a the plan is not going to address the needs that uh that nancy mentioned earlier she was saying that a lot of these problems is based on uh people not having their needs met we let's let's go let's um talk about that further like the the needs uh but right now we're going to have a a sponsor announcement from EDOC Advice.
0: EDOC Advice is our uh, sponsor this evening, and it is a website that's created to provide a place to get answers to your health or medical concerns. Are you wanting more options than you feel that you're getting? Let them help you problem solve. Go to their website and ask your questions. Their experienced professionals will help you to obtain the help you need to make sense that makes sense to you that's www.edocadvice.com they do not replace your health professional or provide you care but they can help you to become a better consumer so that you can get the best information to make a truly informed decision. They network with other professionals throughout the country and bring that information to you. That's EDOC Advice, www.edocadvice.com.
4: Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, going back to to Nancy, you were talking about earlier about um, one of the Ways to approach this problem of gun violence and reckless driving is to look to see what's what are the needs, looking to see if 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 the needs of these individuals have been met. I remember we were Sully uh, and I were having a conversation about um, an example where this guy was driving 90 miles an hour, passing on the right, and he just Happened to pass up someone who was working for the, our office of violence prevention, 414 Life, Baba Derek uh, Rogers, and um, they actually ended up at the same gas station uh, later on. And then, uh, while Dr. While Baba Rogers and this young man who was who was speeding and driving recklessly uh, was actually in line with him at the gas station and and, uh, and so Derek uh, Rogers asked me said uh, you were moving kind of fast back there weren't you and his response was but did you see me did you see me mm-hmm. and, and and we talked about that and you know the need for a lot of these young people they, they want to be seen they want to be heard they um, is that
5: where you were going with that, Nancy? Like, Yeah, a,
4: what I'd like to
7: absolutely, there are core needs in anything that we're doing. And this is a different framework, though. It's looking at what motivates us in every moment, what we think, what we feel. There's, there are core universal needs that we are trying to fulfill. Um, so if you think about the longing for recognition or just the sense to feel empowered in your world, And I really want to talk about the need for power in your world. You know, we can talk about power as power over or empowerment. And every human being wants to feel empowered to be able to meet their own needs and, you know, to make life wonderful, to be able to do things, um, to have agency in your life. And if I think about how we've been conditioned with this way of thinking and communicating that is about separation, othering, dehumanization, labels, judgment, diagnosis, you know, people now pathologize each other and call each other things like passive aggressive or use clinical terms when people are not clinicians. There is so much language that we actually have been programmed that keeps us uh, basically maintaining systems of domination power over others. So when I think about A young person, let's just say, somebody wants to drive really fast or or do sideshows. It's like just having the experience that you can actually be empowered to do something that maybe you've been told you can't do or you're not allowed to do, wanting the freedom to be empowered in your world. Now, the needs are beautiful, but the strategies are where we have the conflict and where the harm is happening. So, you know, and I think about this in the context of when people choose to pick up a weapon, it's not when we feel powerful, empowered within ourselves to be able to resolve a conflict or address an issue that we could talk something through. It's when we feel powerless. And, you know, it's it's ironic if you want to think about, if it was, we want to be able to protect ourselves when we feel powerless, and yet now people have access to these weapons of you know mass destruction and um assault weapons and for you know again we have to really look at this when people are feeling powerless and when people are having intense reactions and getting angry you know literally the blood stops flowing to the front part of your brain We go into survival mode We can't make think critically in those moments either so Um, looking at needs is really critical and if we keep looking systemically at how much we are living in a world that uses power over practices a lot of force and punishment that is not working and that is contributing to people trying to empower themselves in ways that are causing harm to themselves and to others
4: That makes a lot of sense because people want what they don't have and so if people feel Powerless, they're going to do things to, you know, artificially make themselves feel powerful. And thus we have the proliferation of, of, of guns and weapons of mass destruction.
7: Yeah, That's becoming desensitized because violence is glorified in this society. If you think about, you know, as Celia, you were talking about um, in movies and films and books, it's when, you know, let's just say with quotes, the bad person is uh, beat up. People, you know, are joyful. And it's, we, we have learned, we've been conditioned to think about this in ways that makes violence okay. And if we look at all these um, games that young folks are gaming and they're they're killing their opponents, you become desensitized. And you see that over and over and over again. You know, and also when we are inundated, with the news about all of these mass shootings and violence, we become as adults desensitized. It's really hard to stay present to the level of suffering that is all around us. and so We need so hope.
4: Creating creating a new norm. Is that a new norm? Yes. When they talk about creating a new norm, so it, it's becoming um, normal for people to be violent, it's, and, and so maybe it's a culture, it's a, it, we're changing the culture
7: yes we're being widely exposed to so much violence on a regular basis it makes it easier for people to numb out you know i remember when i was in graduate school seeing a film on the number of um billboards that we see on the way to school where people are either they're drinking or they're smoking or um and you become desensitized you don't you stop seeing those things but we are being inundated visually and through the media, and then, you know, it's when violence becomes sensationalized, when it becomes glorified, um, and you see what people are copycat behavior. It's, it's like, fascinating just to see how that's what begins to happen.
4: Right. Well, what can we do from, you know, from the governmental standpoint? Celia, you you know, you work for the city attorney's office. How can, how, how could the city attorney's office possibly address this need to have people feel empowered in order to stop some of the violence and the reckless driving?
8: Well, I don't really think that it's just one office that really has the ability to do that. I mean, I think that these offices have different roles and and responsibilities, but they can collaborate and come up with um, a way to approach um, all of these concerns. The problem is, is that um, so often um, we go with what we don't know. I mean, what we what we go with what we know. We don't we don't really have the always have the creativity to explore what we don't know. So um, there's there's always the You know, more law enforcement, more punitive, more that. I mean, and that's, it's kind of like that's really all we know rather than looking at things that we don't know or at least be willing to try them. But I will say this, I will say this, because see, you know, it's all things are possible. I'm a, a big fan of old movies. If you watch old movies, you will see how people. Smoked in hospitals, they smoked in courtrooms, they smoked whenever. You know, it was a cool thing to do, smoke a cigarette. And look at the length of time that it took to shift this society from one where smoking was not okay and cool to do. Do people still smoke? Yeah. But not like it was before. Do Do you know what I mean?
2: And Never I think seen. that the
8: Surgeon General's message was on cigarettes for, for a decade and the tobacco companies pursued. I mean, it took all of those efforts for there really to be a shift and, of course, the harm that it did to your lungs and, the, you know, a number of different things. So I, I guess I, I cite that as an example of it's possible. But it really does require a lot of time and it requires a shift in thinking. Now a days, if somebody is smoking, you kind of look at them and you frown, not that it's, because it's not the norm anymore. Definitely. Non-smoking is, is, you know, people do other things, they vape and they, they do other kind of stuff. But I mean, that's just an example of what's possible if in fact you can create um, enough movement to show the harm that's being done and and you know clearly with the guns uh, it just occurs to me that that has to be the case but we do have really strong lobbies but we did with the tobacco companies too they were very strong lobbies um, against that and, and promoting those tobacco products so I guess I say that is it's possible but it really does require much work and many people coming together, government, private sector, you know, community based all really advocating for a particular outcome. And I think that it's possible with guns, but it's going to require a lot.
4: That's great. Thank you for that. Let's keep possibility alive. We're at the top of the hour right now, and we're going to resume after a little station break. Um, Nancy, are you going to be with us uh, the second half of the hour or? Or will you? I know you. I will you be.
7: Yeah, I'm going to be leaving shortly. But this has just been such a wonderful discussion, and it's so critical.
4: Okay. Well, stay with us for a few more minutes. We're going to have some guests call in in a minute. But we're at the okay. top of the hour right now, and Dr. Rogers is going to take us there.
5: I'm sure. Shop <laughs>
2: medical clinic. We serve uninsured, underinsured, and insured individuals. Open Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Urgent Care Clinic Friday and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Call for an appointment at 414-988-3079. <laughs> Finley Medical Clinic is accepting new patients. Vaccines and screenings for uninsured, underinsured, and insured. Located at 10721 West Capitol Drive, Suite 110. Call our office for an appointment today at 414 988
1: You are listening to the Sankofa Council of Milwaukee, where your host is Dr. Janine James, Brother Quojo Robinson, Brother Kwasi Craft, and Sister D. D. The program is an affiliate of the Black Reality Think Tank, and it airs on the Time for an Awakening radio platform. Email them at Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. And I repeat, Sankofa Council, MKE at gmail.com. All of their programs are archived. Just go to the website www.timeforanawakening.com. use the search portal, and put in the keyword elders.
9: We would like to thank everyone for being with us. And uh, I'd like to remind those who'd like to call in with a question or a comment, our number is 215-490-9832. And we do have um, a call from 215 Two
10: one five nine two four. Yeah, how, how you doing, my sisters and brothers? How y'all doing tonight?
9: We're great. Glad to hear
10: from you. Likewise, likewise. You know, I, as I live in Philadelphia, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, like like most cities in this country where Black people populate you got you deal with racism, police brutality, inadequate schools, you name it. You know, and we used to see what happened just recently in Buffalo when that devil. Murdered our people, and that maniac shot the children down in uh, Texas the other day. One thing is very clear to us black people: these white folks in this country—they are genetics. <coughs> if you know, if you go back to 2012 when Sandy Hook happened, I I just knew back then. I said, "Well, if these was white children got got slaughtered going to a you know, suburban school." I, I think I think these 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 tics, these white men and stuff who 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 who, who when, when, um. You know, they love their guns and, and, and worship their guns. I said, well, maybe they'll do something now. When that didn't happen, I was—I had no doubt at that point. I said, these white folks don't give a damn if their own children and, and people get slaughtered. They are gun crazy. There's it, one thing Barack Obama said that was true, and I'm the Lord knows I'm no fan of his. He, he was a disgrace in this life and a disgrace in the next life. But they said a broken clock is right twice a day. When he ran for president, back in 2008 the first time he made a comment. He said that the white folks, the white men up in upstate Pennsylvania, they cling to their guns and religion. He told the truth that time because these people, that's all they grew up about is guns, murder, and mayhem, and their phony version, a hypocritical version of Christianity because they brought as much Christian. As as I am a, a, a basketball player, I mean, they just they, they 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 so hypocritical, and fraudulent in their beliefs that they're full of hate and everything else. But he, but again, he told the truth when it comes to it. they would be and they guns. They love that. They don't care about nothing else but their guns. I mean, the, I mean, look look how sick this country is. You got a white a, a white boy can go into a 18 years old and go into a store and buy all the ammo and guns he want. But he can't get a he can't run a car at 18. But he can get a a weapon of mass destruction. You know what I mean? This just shows you the sickness of this country, man, the decadence in this country and it's not and I I don't see it getting any better any time soon. I really don't not because the nature of these people is just so I don't know, it's just like, it's just, it's just like an evil persona with them. They, they, they asked the Honorable Minister Lewis, the way he played a clip on black radio of uh, a speaks that the Honorable Minister Lewis Farrakhan made about seven, eight years ago, where uh, uh, a, a person asked the minister, why do white people do the stuff they do to black people? And Minister Farrakhan said, it's their nature. And I mean, that's pretty much, <laughs> I know it seems simplistic, but that's pretty much it the way it is. That's their nature. And the white man has gone in this world... He has left them a path of death and destruction, bloodshed, death and destruction. You name it. Everywhere he has gone around the world, that's his that, that's his footprint. You know, even when white folks try to stand up, they try to be right. Some of them, I guess, a few of them to try to be righteous, but even the few of them that try to be righteous, they get shut down. I mean, they murder their own people. That when they do that, they look like. like I said, look at the white woman, Saola Luisi, back in '65. They joined the civil rights struggle out there in the South, and the, a and the white man blew her brains out, shot her in a, a shotgun when she was riding with the Freedom Riders back in 1964, 65, one of the, I forgot what year, one of those years. She just blew the woman's brains out. She was a white suburban mom that saw things wasn't right, and she wanted to join the struggle when she got murdered. So this, this country just decadent and evil, and, and white people in denial about their hatred their racism. That's why you think they keep attacking this so-called critical race thing. They, they don't want to face the facts how evil they are. That's why they want. They don't want their children to know. That's why they want to keep everything under rub and stuff like that. I mean, and, and the truth got to be told because this country ever going to move forward? We going to move forward as a people? The truth got to be told. Damn their fellas for how they hurt. They something they white. They don't want their white children fellas hurt. Well, damn you! You doing more to hurt my people. You killing my people. A young a brother like Patrick lawyer in Grand Rapids, Michigan, get his brains blown out. For, for for not having a license plate on his, uh, or his car. A white cop engage him, shoot the brother in the back of the head, white boy can go up to a supermarket in Buffalo and kill out people. You bring them out alive. A devil like Dylan Roof can murder out people in South Carolina and you take them to Burger King? Come on, man. You know what I mean? what, What's going on here, you know? Yes, hello?
9: Yeah, Those so were. Was- those are some uh, very valid points and so happy that you would bring those out uh, for us to, uh, to hear uh, the thoughts that you have. Uh, I've shared some of those uh, concerns uh, and I think this is a good opportunity to go to the elders who actually remember a different time and maybe some of that time needs to be Uh, reenacted to a time when uh, we helped people to learn that they have a value and a place Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I heard on the news this past week that uh, astonished me is that our uh, beaches would be open but with no lifeguards And I'm wondering, why no lifeguards? That they don't have enough people who have learned to be a lifeguard or who have expressed an interest. Now, that certainly was uh, a time when this was a position of pride. And so I think that we have to do more to help people to understand their role in society. And so uh, going about uh, training people to do something as valuable as being a lifeguard is Mm -hmm. important. We had a a time when uh, uh, children aspired to be, well, they were called uh, crossing guards, Mm -hmm. but you, that was a position of, of respect, sure. that you were in this, you were protecting people. Uh, were crossing the street, yes. if we are not doing those kinds of things, uh, some of that can be done in the churches, but not all of us are part of the churches. But certainly, early on in our school, helping people to understand the importance of driving safely. Yes. And why there needs to be driving, uh, instruction. If we don't have it, then we certainly do need to reestablish, uh, having that. The importance of a driver's license for your identification. Yes. If nothing else, that this is an important thing. So some things that we have that have gone, uh, away, uh, certainly may need to be in, reenacted. And, and of course, for young people, many of them do that which seems to get the respect of their peers. Mm-hmm. And so when you've done something wild, like driving fast, if you've done something even violent, uh, you get the respect of your friends. Well, let's find other things where we can gain the respect uh, for our young people where my son went to school at Holy Redeemer, I always loved the fact that they found something to praise the child about. Here's Johnny. He made it to school three times this week on time.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, and we indeed.
9: cheer about that. So I think that we need to begin to examine our doing that, but that we find jobs, we create jobs that creates an environment that allows for there to be some discussion about community values and community responsibilities.
10: I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, Sister, you make a good point because. I'm a 60-year-old black man, and and I and you made me think about my childhood. When I went to high school, we had driver's ed back then, and that's how I got my license, and many of my classmates and friends got it through our driver's ed. And and I noticed in a lot of the inner-city schools, we have allowed the system to take it out of our, out of our schools. And, and the same thing with... Uh, we treat shops and stuff, you know, for those that's not going to college. When I was going to school, we had auto mechanics, carpentry, all that. We, again, we have allowed this, these black politicians that we spoke to, 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 to look out for our interests. They have allowed the system to take this stuff out of our school, right here in Philadelphia. We had two technical schools. we only down to one. But in many of the white schools and stuff, they still have uh, 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 trades and stuff. They still have uh, cosmetology, auto mechanics, you name it. They still have it and stuff. But yet, only one school in in, in Philadelphia High School, and that's uh, Dobbins. We had bot that they, they let close down in the black community. In South Philadelphia, they let they state... And many black people went to that school and depend on that school because they, they, they didn't want to have to go all the way across town. to Dobbs in another part of town they could have just went to Box. But again, they allowed that to be closed. And we need to really... Like, you make a good point, we need to really a protest, a campaign to make sure these things are put back in the school. Because these were valuable things for our children. They like to learn how to swim, you know, by lifeguards. Because when I was growing up, we had a lifeguards at all our city pools up here in Philadelphia. And, 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 and when I grew up in North Philadelphia, even up in Germantown, we had uh, lifeguards and stuff. And that's a valuable thing because it's nothing more... Beautiful than a, a, a young man And woman learning how to swim and stuff like that And for those that want to take it to another level Like you said, they can become, a, him or her can become A lifeguard, and that's a beautiful thing Because, so, cause, you know, because of racism Something about children in the city They never really learned how to swim and and, and and learning how to swim is definitely an important thing You never know when that may come in handy You're right Sister Sarka, you had a question
9: You wanted to ask was that
0: about the Marshall Plan? Yes, I the Marshall Plan that um, we're mentioning. Uh, what's the background to that? What is what is being offered in that plan? So,
8: so this is brilliant. I What I understood, um, and I think this is what Charles was talking about, was really um, having a curfew. Um, really, from throughout the summer, Memorial Day to Labor Day, um, for the um, a different curfew for the weekday and then the evening, um, pretty much across the board, um, similar to what happened um, in the late '60s in Milwaukee when there was um, there were the riots and just trying to keep peace on the streets. So that is my understanding of what that plan is obviously a very drastic plan um and you know people want to be able to get out and do things but that is um one of the things that had been offered is like that for, for adults or young people i think that it's pretty is that much aimed at young people but um i'm not sure if there were all of those distinctions that were made but i do think that it was aimed at younger people I don't know if there was a particular age identified, um, but yes, I do believe it was it was aimed at younger people.
0: The thing no, about okay. that is, um, just as a comment, the way that the incidences are happening, it could be anybody. It could be it could be pe- uh, adults, young adults over 21 over over 35 is buried
2: and, absolutely
0: and young people if you're if you're defiant you're not going to pay attention to that anyway so will they be will they be um putting those does that mean the prison the jail is going to be busy
5: because well it <laughs> It
8: means there will certainly be a lot of activity, but I agree with you. A lot of the behavior we're seeing is not relegated to people under the age of 25. And so you can imagine what the reaction would be if there was a curfew across the board for everybody. Um, regardless of age, uh, you know, you have to be in your house at a certain time. That would engender even more upset across the board. So. I do think that it is an extreme measure. Um, It it certainly is is one idea, but I don't think that it's the kind of thing that would get a lot of traction because it would have an impact on businesses and other parts of the community, which I think that Milwaukee is definitely trying to stimulate more growth and engagement of people, especially like in, in the Deer District. So if everybody had to be home,
4: by 8 or 9 o'clock, you know, that would definitely impact a lot of businesses in the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would put my stock in what Nancy and, and the and uh, the brother who called in and Dr. James was saying about investing in people and looking to see how we can, you know, support them having uh, their needs be fulfilled. Yes. And, and seeing themselves as people of work now, in, in Wisconsin, teenagers uh, in the black families uh, in, in the in the black family, only seven percent of teenagers live with their biological parents. Seven percent, and so a lot of um, households only have a single mother who's trying to do everything, and uh, you, the children are not getting the parenting that they need.
10: Parenting,
4: I believe, is the is the basic foundation of a child's development
10: parenting,
4: you know, socialization and then education. But, you know, if you, if we look at how people are being socialized, you know, it's, that's why we have the, the outcome, the results that we have right now. I would be more interested in putting stock into going back to the root, the root causes of these problems. And like Sui was saying, you know, it's going to take, um, is collaboration to take people being in alignment. Now, Malcolm X said it's the ballot or the bullet, right?
10: Mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. Order, to
4: change, in order to change the law and to put the money where it belongs, it, you know, you're going to have to go through that legislative process which implies people have to come out and vote. And we need to have people running for offices who have compassion for the needs of the people?
9: Well, we do have an ability to not vote for people. Now, I, I don't see where that would be that difficult. If you have a list, let's say, of all of the uh, legislators who are voting uh, in support of these uh, uh, limited uh, uh, Policies to acquire a gun, uh, those would be individuals that would not be on my voting list. Um, and I don't think that we exercise that. We don't have to have people in those positions who are not doing what it is that troubles us. Now, that doesn't mean that there are segments of the country that support. Uh, the gun rules as they are, but certainly those of us who don't have a right and an obligation not to vote for those individuals who don't have uh, the the uh, thoughts that we have.
4: You know, George is a good example of what you're talking about right now, because it looks like Herschel Walker, who is, uh, you know, he's an ex-football uh, player. He's very popular, and he's someone being uh, promoted by our former president Donald Trump. And but the guy, you know, he he he's not. How should I say this? He's not a. He wouldn't be a competent um, representative. And <clears throat> but 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 he may win because, you know, for two reasons: people may not come out to vote, and and the other reason is. You know, people are, are illiterate. I, 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 I would say they're, they're legislatively illiterate because if they would vote for somebody like Herschel Walker, who has done some crazy things, I think he, he played Russian roulette, he was involved in domestic violence, you know, he, he was a great football player, but he would not be a good senator. He, he, wouldn't, he should not be replacing Senator Warnock right now. And when you look at the makeup of the Senate right now, you have these conservative Republican senators who won't do anything to change uh, gun law legislation because for a couple of reasons. Well, the main one, I think, is, is, is the money. They're being paid off by the NRA, and the NRA is a very powerful lobbyist. We need to do something about that.
9: Well, how do, how do we do that? How do we do it? So my proposal is you actively not vote for those individuals who are not representing what we feel is good sense.
8: Yeah, this is Celia. I, I think that it, it also requires mobilizing and really getting people um, really fired up. I mean, we have in our lifetime we have seen occasions where people have been fired up and they've come out. I mean, they came out in two thousand eight for Barack Obama. People were fired up all across the country. Um, we we saw what happened in the murder of George Floyd. People around the country, around the world, you know, got fired up about something. It really requires that level of mobilization. Um, in order for you to have an impact. And then, you know, and and then you you still run up against it at a later point in time because you have this other force that wants to undo that. But it it does occur to me that uh, that kind of mobilization um, can have an impact.
4: It would. It would. You know, we have that George Floyd money coming down to – Counties throughout America right now And now another question is And we had a guest a couple of weeks ago Who talked about that Talked about participatory budgeting You know when you have people Involved in the budgeting process Who look like us Who care about us And who have compassion And who want to fulfill the needs of people So we can you know Change this, this culture This normality of violence it's going to take. Um, it's going to take money. It's going to take shifting money from law enforcement, perhaps, and putting it into other areas where we can be more proactive, and you know, in terms of supplying the needs for people. Would you agree yeah. to that, Nancy? Is Nancy, you still with us?
7: Yes, I am. Um, I'm so really deeply moved by all that I'm hearing in the first caller the level of, you know, anguish and the desire for change and for people to stop denying responsibility around the harm that's happening. Um, And yes, I think that it's going to take everyone being involved. I think partly what we need to really take ownership for as individuals and within our communities, we all just need to start connecting and getting to know each other and being responsible to contribute, you know, to the young people, especially today, a lot of young people who feel really isolated and don't have the quality of connection, um, mentoring role models, somebody saying, hey, I care about you, I see you, let's spend some time together, Um, you matter, the recognition and, and the showing up and being a force in another person's life, you know, we turn away from each other on the streets. We don't honor the humanity in front of us, and there are things that we can start doing together right now within ourselves, within our families, within our communities. Um, as, as simultaneously, we work towards you know finding better strategies and figuring out how to shift the level of harm and violence that's occurring.
4: Yes, thank you so much for that, um, Sister. I'm sort ante you have an announcement to make about our email address. Give me a mute yourself.
0: <laughs> okay, we heard the, we heard it in the house. <laughs> Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yes, uh, if you have an email, uh, if you would like to email us a question or a comment to SankofaCouncilMKE at gmail.com. We're eager to hear your questions or comments that you may have. Thank you.
10: Thank
4: you. I'm trying to... Uh, excuse me. Uh, a call is trying to come into my telephone. <laughs> it's actually my mother. calling me. I'm going to have to give her a message, and I'll call her back. Hopefully everything is okay. But anyway, getting back to, to our discussion, you know, when Malcolm said the ballot or the bullet, he was really advocating the uh, the ballot for people to be involved, you know, in our legislative process, you know. But many times people who do come out to vote think that they only have to vote for the president, but it's the local uh, elections that mean the most. All politics is local. And we <clears throat> historically haven't been really supporting our local elections, like uh, here in Milwaukee, school board elections turnout is around 10%. 10% is extremely low for school board. But if you're concerned about critical race theory or the fact that schools aren't teaching history in our schools, then it would be incumbent upon you to be involved in school board politics. And, and we're not doing that so much. The other thing that Malcolm X said was the worst thing is not to kill a man but to teach him to hate himself
10: mm.
4: and he will kill himself.
10: Mm.
4: And, and that's, what's, that's what seems to be happening right now. It's like there's a lack of self-love and self-compassion. You don't love yourself you know, you. How can you get what you don't have?
8: Yeah, that you know, this, this is Celia. That is so powerful. I mean, that is that is such a powerful insight, and I do think that we historically have seen lots of incidents of that. Um, we can go back with indigenous people and how you know they have been treated, and um, all of the different cultural aspects have been taken and stripped away. Um, We we certainly can look at um, people of African descent, and it just is indicative of how ingrained these systems are incorporated in our society. But to teach a person to hate themselves, and that's certainly not something that is taught you know, when I, when, I, when I say taught, I mean, it's not something you, you um, are taught in a classroom, but it's something you learn by the manner in which you're treated and how you're valued or devalued. And that says and speaks volumes, because one of the things that occurs for me, especially with the guns and um, the reckless driving, we've heard so many stories of how young people Um, have said, well, they don't think that they're gonna live beyond a certain age. And so that, so I can can do and I can engage in whatever because the the vision of hope and what the American dream doesn't really live for me. And that just goes back to some of the things that we've been talking about on what the needs are, how people have to be enculturated and valued and understand a set of values in order for them to survive in this society.
4: Yeah, we there's so many things that we can't do. Everybody can do something. To quote uh, Joe Madison, my my buddy over in D.C. on XM Radio, everybody can do something. People call into his show and they're complaining about this or that. His question is, and what are you going to do about it? And then he comes back with, everybody can do something. And uh, you know, Joe and I played college football together, and he was a team captain. And that was approached back then when we were teenagers. Yeah, everybody can do something. One of the things that I'm looking at doing is help uh, in the co-parenting process so children have access to their parents and have written parenting agreements and also to help with um, resolving conflict, peacemaking, peace healing and collaboration. We need that in our community.
5: Well, and love, this is, love a is the power.
4: Love, love is, 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 the, is the energy that, that we can use. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
9: Well, Pat, perhaps this is the role, again, that the elders uh, must play um, it, especially when they remember another time when uh, people were recognized for that which they did so you're speaking about the co-parenting but um, we perhaps we need to talk about uh, is there a reward not just a reward in heaven but is there a prize or award for being a a great parent that may sound extreme but uh, especially among the fathers who is the father who's going to attend most of the uh, programs and the events of their child there's some reward for them And i think about our lieutenant governor uh, Mandela Barnes whose dad attended many of the programs that were offered by the uh, parent teachers association. In fact, he traveled all over the country for their various meetings in support of the public schools. And what does he have is a son who is, uh, uh, not only a politician, but who is our Lieutenant governor. And so, uh, I think that more people need to know that there are some benefits in supporting your children uh, it makes and difference. making them feel good.
4: It makes a difference. So we have a few more minutes. Um, any last words from from Nancy about about that? Especially what what Dr. James just said about acknowledging. Uh, good behavior on the part of, of fathers, or you know, like you were saying earlier, this this, this the power of love is um, is what we need to embrace, perhaps, and to have people have their needs met. You know, is is going to require our being compassionate to to one another and, and being you know, empathetic. And so how do we build on that? How do we expand? How do we expand that?
7: Yeah, I think that this is, um, again, the choice to be able to choose love, but love is an unconditional force for change. Um, And it's to attempt to see the humanity in everyone because, unless we can reach, you know, people, even people that we see as the oppressor, you know, our future is tangled together. We've got to be able to make connections and break down the walls that lead to separation, othering, and hate. That Those are the systems that maintain domination and power over um, a, a world where domination is the practice through all of these different systems of force. And I'd rather that we have love and truth as the force, you know, that we can connect to. But I think what we're able to do individually is significant. And it starts with, you know, being able to be compassionate towards ourselves for the ways that we also impact others that are harmful Um, and to be able to begin to communicate in ways that cause less harm and don't reinforce messages that people don't matter because that's what happens when we, we see somebody as the enemy, we then disconnect from them. And when people are disconnected and isolated, when they're not able to form connections, we're seeing how that can lead to people choosing to enact violence um, on others because they, they're not connected. So how do we pull everybody in and begin to build those connections? We can do that through love, through an unconditional love. It's a different force and kind of love. But um, this question, yes, how do we begin to love ourselves? It's how helping people even treat each other with the respect and not choosing strategies that include harm unless we also love ourselves to recognize that when we harm somebody else, we're harming ourselves?
4: We are all interconnected. Wow, you said you said so much. I'm just thinking about the many ways that we can we can do that. I know the mindful practice um, is one way. Um, one of the things that I'm doing, and I, I'm looking to share it with uh, with other people more and more. Um, we need to heal ourselves. We have trauma in our bodies, you know, handed down, based on science, epigenetically. And to just notice that and find ways to process and metabolize the trauma that we have, Uh, in addition to what you were saying, knowing how to speak to each other and listen to each other in a way that um, nonviolence shows up. I recall making a statement many years ago uh, when children who went off to the national track meet came back with medals and didn't get any acknowledgement. And I wrote an article in the paper for them because I was there, my sons were there. And the guy in charge of the track uh, team accused me of instigating an article, you know, (laughs) I was only and I said in in the article that children are giving us what we give them. That there's a a direct correlation between what we give them and the results that shows up for us that we complain about. So they're giving us what we're giving them. And I think we can provide much more than we're providing right now for our children.
5: I find yes. that brother
4: brother um, from
0: from uh, uh, from the um, from this perspective is that we're giving them an inheritance of life,
5: mm. and
0: that the life that we're giving them, they have to, they too will be senior citizens. They will be the elders, and what are they giving to their children? How are they mm. expecting? them to live if they're living like this and as they become elders what is their expectations of their youth Mm. we're giving them an inheritance whether they can whether they can see it or not but what are they going to give their children what what type of life will they expect for their children to live if this is what is normal for them
4: legacy exactly What legacy are we passing on to the future?
9: Well, I think of being something very basic. Um, I mentioned about the Parent Teacher Association or perhaps some other meeting. Maybe we have to be very um, direct with folks. Uh, Everybody who attends Uh, This particular meeting gets $20, and everybody who attends is in the running for uh, a $100 gift certificate for having attended this particular meeting. I think that would be a worthwhile way to use some of these dollars that you're speaking about. Certainly, if I knew that people were passing out $20, I would try to make it to that meeting. And uh, you might say it shouldn't have to be that way, but if it gets people there, so be it. I you're remember-
4: fulfilling a need. You are fulfilling a need that a lot of people have, and that's finance.
9: Yes.
4: And that's what that's what uh, Nancy was saying. If we if we know what the needs are, when we fulfill those needs, then you know the result is going to be different. Is that what you're saying, Nancy?
7: Well, I see money as a strategy. To me, if, if you have money, what needs would that meet for the person who's receiving it? And, and it varies, right, for each person. But I definitely hear you're trying to find a way to attract people and to inspire them to show up, um, and and maybe find you know something where there would be some type of exchange.
5: Mm-hmm.
7: But to me, I, I don't I don't see money as a need. Um, it's definitely something, it's a resource that contributes to needs getting met. That
0: certainly lines up with the, the way that the government is, is handling um, society. They're providing money at this time. The American um, uh, Restoration Plan, the Infrastructure Plan, all of it is money, trillions of dollars being spent right now to get, you know the country back in some form, which are creating jobs, which are creating infrastructure changes, which are you know creating benefits and things in various ways.
4: So money is definitely being used. And you know that that's a good point. And but to, and to really find out what people need, we have to be with the people. We need to actually have um, interaction. In relationship with the people to really find out what the needs are. Um, there was a list of needs that that uh, Nancy shared with us. I, it was a couple of pages, wasn't it, Nancy?
7: Yes. Well, it's a beginning list, and there are more to add, but it's, it's really looking at, you know, what does somebody get? Um, let's just say if they were given money, would it be financial security? Would it be peace of mind? Would it be possibility? Would it be shelter? Um, You know, would it be nutrition, food? Um, Would it be security? You know, so there are different needs that we meet through that strategy. And it is, you know, having financial sustainability is important because we want to be able to take care of our families and feed our families and house our families. Um, but there are many needs that can get mad at just in a given moment. What does that resource, what needs does that resource meet for each individual?
4: Yes, thank you, thank you. All right, Phil, um, do so you, you have anything you want to say to wrap, wrap up? We are about to close out in about four minutes. So we have four more minutes. Before we close up,
8: I don't have a whole lot um, to add. I mean, I think that that there have been a number of really good comments made. Um, I agree um, that um, you know some of what Nancy was just saying as far as the different needs that people have. But the thing about it is, we have to make sure that when when those provisions are made, that we're really dealing with a comprehensive set of needs, as opposed to maybe just one need or another need. The needs really have to be able to take care of people in all the different aspects of which they need to be successful and to thrive. And so, while you might provide a need for food, if you don't have the the, the resources for shelter, then It's still not giving you all of what you do need to be successful. And we know that um, education is another um, um, very valued resource in in this society, and if people don't have access to good education because there's too many other things that are associated with it that make it really very difficult to learn, then you know those, those needs can't be met. So I do think that there are um, many different strategies that can be incorporated. I I do agree, um, Charles, um, when you make reference to the mindfulness that you know if mindfulness was a practice that was really encouraged throughout, not just in the schools but in every aspect of the workplace and the like it really could allow us to approach things very differently. So there's a lot of different things out there that really need to happen. But I guess the way I see it, we just have to take it one step at a time, and we have to try one thing at a time. It's not going to be just one thing or another. It's a comprehensive set of things that are going to really be able to make a change and make a difference.
4: Well, I agree with that. We have to take a holistic approach, and, yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, and mindfulness, I think, <clears throat> would really make a difference because it would help people to have compassion and empathy for themselves and others, and it would give them uh, space between, you know, when something happens or something sad is said that triggers you, you know, people who practice mindfully actually have more space to kind of reboot their brain. So when the amygdala tries to cause a snap or a hijack and they do or say something that they're sorry for later, you know, people who practice mindfully, they have a little more space where they can have time to act or speak more rationally and I think if um if, 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 if we could cause that it would have a, a major impact on the gun violence and the uh and perhaps the reckless driving as well, which is a show of force based on what, what Nancy was saying. People who feel powerless have a need to exercise their power it would
8: also provide people with strategies on how to resolve conflicts when they happen, and not necessarily engage in reaction all of the time but also take that pause and look at some other ways to deal with the conflict that's in front of you
4: yes they need that time that pause go ahead ahead, nancy i
7: was going to say you know as, as black people we are so resilient and so powerful and so brilliant um, and so strong and we're also living in a system and a society and um, we're looking at these really core issues so not only do we want to have the individual needs of all humans and black people and people of color all over to be met we also need racial equity we need to have we need to look at all of the systems that exist because it's until power hoarding is addressed And we have a way to have power where power is shared so that all of the systems that are, we're living in a a world where domination systems exist, but the master's tools won't dismantle the master's house. We have to use different tools. And for me, as long as we continue to respond in ways that use power over others, we will not be able to make the change that we need. And that was the final word. Thank you well so stated,
8: much. Well Bring yes. into
4: the house. <laughs> yes. So thank, thank you for joining us tonight. And uh, also thank Dr. Rogers and his uh, production staff and the Sankofa Council for its support in this program and for sharing, you know, the vision of uh, unity for an Afrocentric principles and, and helping us to learn and use those principles in our lives. We look forward to bringing you more programs that we hope you will enjoy. Visit our sponsor, www.edocadvice.com, and the Finley Medical Clinic. Good night, and stay safe.
6: Thank you. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. I'll them again we will never, never, never trust. <laughs> them not know what they're doing. Go to Yai while I'm sticking like (laughs) glue Blinking green while I'm plotting for you.